Welcome to this episode of Litigation Briefs, Media Shorts on Law and Courts. I'm Scott Dodson, a distinguished professor of law at UC Hastings College of the Law and the director of the Center for Litigation and Courts, which produces this series. The federal agency called the Environmental Protection Agency regulates all kinds of pollutants, including air pollutants, but it has no authority to regulate indoor air. Say, though, the EPA adopts a regulation prohibiting the use of a certain kind of paint on indoor walls because of the risk of hazardous inhalation in confined spaces. My buddy Bob is planning to repaint his home and he wants to use the prohibited paint. The EPA gets wind of Bob's plans and sends him a letter threatening to fine him if he uses that paint. So Bob sues the EPA for a declaratory judgment that the regulation is unlawful. Plus, he wants a court order preventing the EPA from fining him or taking other action against him. Let's say the judge agrees with Bob. Also, the judge thinks that a lot of other homeowners around the country want to use the same paint on their homes. Each one could sue for the same thing in separate lawsuits, of course, but that would be a tremendous burden on them and a tremendous waste of judicial resources. So the judge in Bob's case enjoins the EPA from enforcing its unlawful regulation against not just Bob, but against anyone, anywhere. Is that kind of nationwide injunction allowed? And should it be? Here to help me with these questions is my guest, Michael Morley, the Sheila M. McDevitt Professor of Law at Florida State Law School. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thrilled to be here. What's a nationwide injunction? So when typically you hear people talking about nationwide injunctions, particularly in the press, they're talking about a court order to a governmental defendant, whether that's a particular official or a government agency that tells that government defendant that they're not allowed to enjoin a particular legal provision, whether it's a statute or a regulation, perhaps even an executive order against anyone anywhere in the nation, not, and it doesn't, it goes beyond simply prohibiting them from enforcing that provision against the particular plaintiffs in the case. And is that, are there other kinds of nationwide injunctions? Absolutely. I've, I've argued somewhat unsuccessfully that the term nationwide injunction is actually misleading simply because there are many types of wholly appropriate, unremarkable orders that can have nationwide effect. The real crux of the controversy in situations like this isn't really the geographical scope of the injunction, but rather whose rights the courts are trying to enforce. So for example, you could have uh, a nationwide plaintiff-oriented injunction where the court tells the government defendant that it's not allowed to enforce the challenge legal provision against this particular plaintiff. However, it's not allowed to, to enforce that provision against the plaintiff 
anywhere in the nation. And so if the if the plaintiff you know, goes across state lines, for example, the government can't just start reinforcing the, the, the challenged provision against them. So in that sort of a situation, the, the injunction is nationwide in the sense that the plaintiff is protected wherever they go or wherever they do business throughout the country. But the but the but the scope of the injunction is limited to protecting just the rights of that plaintiff. On the other hand, you might have what I was talking about earlier, nationwide defendant-oriented injunctions, where the focus is on the government defendant. The focus of the order is telling the government defendant, whether the agency or the official, that they're not allowed to enforce this provision against anywhere throughout the entire nation. And I also think it's important to distinguish those types of orders, plaintiff-oriented injunctions, defendant-oriented injunctions, from other types of orders that could have nationwide effect. So for example, you could have what I call a nationwide class injunction, where a, where a court certifies a national class of right holders and then issues an injunction telling the government you're prohibiting the government from enforcing that challenge legal provision against any members of the class. So yet again, that order would have nationwide effect because the scope of the class encompasses right holders throughout the nation, yet it would be tailored to enforcing the rights of party litigants to that case, members of the class that the court had certified, you know, people who the court has brought into the case as class members. And then you arguably in certain sorts, in certain cases where associations assert associational standing, where they claim to sue not on behalf of their individual interests as an entity or as a group, but rather where they assert a standing to assert the rights of their members, some courts have issued essentially nationwide defendant-oriented injunctions in those sorts of cases on the grounds that it's just too hard to sort out who is and who isn't an association member. And that has become uh, a, an area of, of recent controversy, whether uh, in associational standing cases, that's become a backdoor way of, of seeking uh, nationwide relief. Let me ask you a bit about the plaintiff-oriented injunction, or in my hypo, this would be an injunction that is to Bob's benefit, even if he were to want to use the the paint in some other house elsewhere in the country. So a plaintiff-oriented nationwide injunction. Are those are those lawful? Absolutely. Right. Under, under traditional principles of equity, under the traditional rules governing judgments, the case has been uh, adjudicated between Bob and the government. The government would be barred from by race judicata and collateral estoppel from trying to relitigate the issue against Bob. And so it's wholly appropriate for a court to issue an order tailored to protecting Bob's rights. And particularly when you're talking about a, a challenge against the federal government, the fact that Bob might want to paint a house in Florida versus painting a house in California for purposes of you know, e EPA regulations, the legality of those regulations, the proper interpretation of the statute isn't going to change. And so again, if you think about the proper issue as what is necessary to protect the rights of the plaintiff to that case, it doesn't really matter whether Bob's in Florida or in California, it's Bob's rights that's being protected either way. And then what about the defendant-oriented injunction? And so in my hypo, this would be the court ordering the EPA not to enforce 
the regulation against anyone and not just Bob. Is that defendant-oriented injunction lawful? So the, the Supreme Court has some cases that where they say relief needs to be tailored to enforcing the rights of the plaintiff. In recent years, there have been opinions from individual Supreme Court justices rejecting the use of such nationwide defendant-oriented injunctions. But especially in the past few years, once this has become an issue, once courts have, have started issuing these types of orders, the court hasn't squarely and directly addressed the issue. Nevertheless, there are several lines of uh, Supreme Court precedent and several other general principles the court has recognized that are in strong tension with those types of orders. Most basically, you have the concept of Article III standing. Right? When you go to court, you have standing to assert your own rights, to seek judicial relief, to seek an injunction protecting your own rights, but you generally don't have standing to assert the rights of just random third parties, to assert the rights of just other members of the general public. And so a nationwide defendant-oriented injunction goes beyond the relief that the plaintiff has standing to seek. It seeks to pr protect the rights of third-party non-litigants who aren't involved in the case, who the plaintiff lacks, whose rights the plaintiff lacks standing to assert. There's also tension between those types of orders and Rule 23 of the Rules of Civil Procedure, which authorizes class actions. Right? We already have a procedural mechanism where if someone suffers a harm that is comparable, that is similar to or identical to the harm that other right holders are, are facing. So, for example, if Congress passes an unconstitutional statute or an agency, in your example, issues an, an invalid regulation or something out beyond, otherwise beyond the scope of its authority, numerous people may can be in affected in exactly the same way by that. And so we already have a class action mechanism that allows an individual to sue to assert not only their own rights, but also the rights of other similarly situated right holders. And so a nationwide defendant-oriented injunction gives effectively class-wide relief in a non-class case without going through the procedural requirements and without satisfying the substantive requirements of Rule 23. So under the rules of civil procedure and particularly under the, under the policies that led to the adoption of Rule 23, these types of orders seem very problematic. They also lead to unfairness from the perspective of relitigation. So if courts are able to issue these nationwide defendant-oriented injunctions, that means that no matter how many times a, a individual plaintiffs lose, the other, other unrelated right holders can continue to relitigate those same claims, potentially in other courts, potentially even within, within, this, within the same circuit, if the circuit hasn't yet addressed the issue yet. And yet, if the government loses even one of those cases, then the underlying provision gets enjoined against uh, everyone everywhere. And so it becomes a matter of all it, the government literally has to run the table, has to win 100% of cases everywhere in order to be able to enforce the challenge legal provision against anyone anywhere. 
if the government and if these types of cases instead had to proceed as class actions, that type of unfairness would be eliminated because once the court certifies a class, then all the other right holders who otherwise would be non-litigants by getting certified into a class, they then get down by the results of the judgment. So if they win, everyone gets the benefit of the injunction. If they lose, then members of that class can't go and try to relitigate the same issue in, in other jurisdictions. There are, there are structural concerns that have been raised to nationwide defendant-oriented injunctions. The notion that going back to the Everts Act, which created the structure of our modern federal court system, Congress specifically decided to create a hierarchical system of courts, a very decentralized system of courts. And so the notion that a single district judge, particularly in a non-class case, can impose his or her own view of the Constitution, including with regard to the claims of right holders whose claims would otherwise be adjudicated based on the law of other circuits, the notion that a single district judge can in unilaterally invalidate a legal provision throughout the entire nation, and even that a single circuit can impose its view of the law by affirming such an injunction across the entire nation, even though other courts and other circuits aren't bound by its precedents, is in tension with the structure of the judiciary. And then there are prudential concerns that have been raised. The notion that if individual judges are allowed to enjoin legal provisions against everyone everywhere throughout the entire nation, it exacerbates the results of forum shopping because you have cutting edge constitutional cases being brought before the most ideological outlier judges, right? So conservative type cases get brought before the most conservative judges of the nation, more progressive type nation cases get brought before the most progressive judges in the nation. And so you have cut constitutional law in some of our most important cases and some of the most unsettled cutting edge cases being structured, having the initial initial rulings being issued in and having the rights of everyone throughout the nation being decided by consistently ideological outlier judges on either side of the political spectrum, rather than the median judge, or rather than an ideological mix of judges, which arguably has contributed, at least in part, to this constant rush of emergency applications for emergency relief to circuits, emergency relief to the Supreme Court, precisely because you have a handful of judges exercising a strongly disproportionate effect on, on constitutional law in these, in these cases. Those are a lot of the downsides of the defendant-oriented nationwide injunction. What are some of the practical benefits of them, and, and how do you account for those? So one of, the, one of the main benefits is that not every right holder can run to court, right? Not every right holder is in a position to bring their own challenge to an unconstitutional statute. And so one of the, one of the most common defenses of these types of orders is that they allow a judicial ruling of unconstitutionality to have a broader effect beyond the, beyond the immediate parties to the case. It allows people who otherwise would not be able to go to court to enforce their own rights to get the benefit of, of these sorts of rulings. And so one of the main one of the main rationales for this type of order is this notion of ensuring that members of the public, ensuring that particularly people who might be you know, marginalized from the judicial system, that they're able to have their rights effectively enforced and fully enforced by the by the federal courts. Okay, now I want to ask you about a recent case. In April, 
a Florida federal court struck down the CDC mask mandate for uh, airplane travelers. Was that a nationwide injunction? And do you think that was lawful? So the, the, the court purported to vacate the mandate. And so in addition to everything else we spoke about, there's an additional overlay that, that applies when you're talking specifically about challenges of this sort to agency regulations, which is whether Congress has statutorily authorized federal courts in cases like this to grant this sort of relief. So if you interpret the Administrative Procedures Act, which is the federal law that authorizes these types of challenges to, to agency action of that sort, if you interpret the Administrative Procedures Act as, as purporting to authorize courts to give in, in, effectively nationwide defendant-oriented injunctions, or at least grant relief that's substantively equivalent to, 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 to those types of orders. It eliminates many of the, many of the, the, the statutory questions and rule-based questions that have been raised against these orders. And it then flatly presents the constitutional question of, can a federal, regardless of whether Congress purports to authorize it or not, can, can Congress actually authorize federal courts to give relief to third-party non-litigants, right, particularly third-party non-litigants who lack some sort of special relationship with the plaintiff, who haven't been brought into the case as, as class members? And so this sort, of a, this sort of a situation squarely raises the, the constitutional question because the court could have granted plaintiff-oriented relief, right? The, the court could have tailored an injunction telling the, telling the government, you're not allowed to enforce the mandate against this particular plaintiff, or you're not allowed to enforce the mandate under circumstances where it would undermine or infringe upon the rights of the plaintiffs to this case, while then leaving unaddressed, the, the, at that time anyway, the bigger question of, well, what about, what about third parties? What about, can the, can the mandate be applied to third party non-litigants? Because again, this order was issued by a single district court. If and when the case goes up on appeal to the circuit level, regardless of if, if this regardless of what the what the scope of the injunction is, once the circuit court enters its enters its judgment, its opinion then will have starry decisive effect throughout the states of that circuit, right? So this case would go up to the 11th circuit. Now, right holders throughout Florida, Georgia, Alabama would be protected, not necessarily by an injunction, but by the starry decisive effect of that circuit court ruling. And of course, if and when a case goes up to the Supreme Court, right, most people throughout the nation are protected not by an injunction, but rather by the starry decisive effect of the Supreme Court's ruling, right? Like most famous Supreme Court cases that, that you've heard of, right? Most famous Supreme Court cases that, that, that we rely upon, right? Among the most bedrock Supreme Court cases, right? People don't go back and ask, well, what was the scope of the injunction in that case, right? Nobody goes back to Brown versus Board of Education and asks, what is the scope of the injunction in that case? Rather, it's the starry decisive effect of these seminal rulings that protect constitutional rights throughout the entire nation. And so really the, the, the main question, or one of the main questions with regard to orders of, 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 of the type you're discussing here is, the Supreme Court has, has already held that Dis federal district court rulings don't even have starry decisive effect within their own districts. And so to the extent that it's typically starry decisis that, that gives 
protection for third-party non-litigants, the stare decisis effect of circuit court rulings, the stare decisis effect of U.S. Supreme Court rulings. Why would we want a single district court ruling to nevertheless impose a uniform interpretation of the Constitution and a uniform application of rights for everybody across the entire nation, that court could very well be wrong. There, if if, if this, that first court ruling unilaterally settles the issue throughout the entire country, the Supreme Court doesn't get the benefit of having the issue percolate. It doesn't get the benefit of seeing the pros and cons of different approaches, of seeing the practical consequences of different approaches, of even seeing if a circuit split develops on the issue, or instead there's just a naturally growing consensus. Rather, that first ruling settles the issue across the entire nation and then becomes an emergency that needs to be immediately appealed up the up the chain quite often directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, Michael, thanks so much for helping us understand nationwide injunctions. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. This episode was produced by the Center for Litigation and Courts at UC Hastings College of the Law. If you enjoyed this episode of Litigation Briefs, I hope you'll tune in to future episodes. In fact, I hope you'll consider subscribing to our YouTube channel and audio podcast, which can be accessed through the Center for Litigation and Courts website at sites.uchastings.edu CLC. While you're at it, encourage a friend to do the same. This is Litigation Briefs, respectfully submitted, Scott Dodson.